there's one line from that video that I think is worth repeating. Whose we are affects who we are. Does that make sense to you? Whose we are, when we know whom, to whom we belong, it affects how we see who we are. Let's read the rest of this scripture passage from Colossians chapter 3. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you are called to peace. And be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Let's pray for a moment. God, as we open your word, allow the scriptures to not only teach us, but to feed the soul so that as we encounter your truth, that your truth will continue to to recalibrate the way that our hearts are set, the things on which our minds are oriented, that more and more your thoughts and your truth will infiltrate our thoughts and the way we look at the world around us and the way that we understand ourselves. Lord, I pray that you will take the faith of those who already know you and trust you deeper as a result of our time together and that more and more we will be reshaped to look and act and think and talk and respond like Jesus. We know this is your goal. We know the scripture says that you are in the process of conforming every person who is in Christ to the image of Jesus. So we turn our hands up for a moment and we say, Lord, have your way with me. Lord, teach me more. Lord, don't let these just be words that bounce off me, but that penetrate my understanding and that shape how I see the world and how I see myself. And Lord, we pray for those who are in our midst and who are friends here who are kicking the tires of faith and wondering if there are reasons to believe, and we pray that you will draw them through your kindness and through the characteristics that you promise that you are building into us as well, that you will grant them faith, faith that leads to life. In Jesus' name, amen. This past Wednesday, about 50 North River folks gathered on a small beach on Duxbury Bay as 12 people were baptized. It was a beautiful scene. The weather was warm, the sky was clear, and for a few minutes I reminded everyone that when we celebrate a believer's baptism like this in a river or a lake or in the ocean, we are following the earliest pattern of Christian baptism as we read about it in the Gospels or in the Acts of the Apostles. So here are a few photos from that celebration. It's not all of them, and I apologize to anybody if you might have been left out, but let's just let these roll for a minute. I want these images to sink in in your minds. This is what we were experiencing Wednesday night.
in those pictures, we saw a number of tremendous scenes. Individuals, sometimes couples being baptized together. In one case, three children all being baptized together. And it was, it was a phenomenal scene of, of celebration and of great joy. They were young and they were older and they were in between. And everyone was giving testimony to the change that comes when Jesus begins to invade our lives and when we turn over leadership to him. And there was a lot of celebration and there were tears of joy and, and memories created that will last for a long time. While we were on the beach, I alluded to three spiritual realities that are pictured in a believer's baptism. The first is the idea that our sins are washed away. Now, the act of baptism, of course, doesn't do that. God does that through the inner working of his Holy Spirit. As the grace of God in Christ is applied to our lives through faith, God forgives us and the Holy Spirit washes us and cleanses us from the stain of every sin. The second thing that is pictured or symbolized in baptism is the death of Christ. So when a person is lowered under the water, that is literally drawing a picture of dying and being included in the burial of Christ. We no longer live by the old nature, the sinful, self-centered nature. And then a third picture of, uh, that is part of a believer's baptism draws the image of being raised with Jesus and rising up into the new life that he promises. Now, we stress these things and call these pictures to mind when we celebrate a believer's baptism because the more each individual is aware of the powerful symbolism, not mere symbolism, but powerful, rich symbolism of this event, the more our participation in an event like this resonates in our minds and stays with us and brings meaning. The more we do this, the greater the impact on how we carry this memory forward with us. Now, I wanted you to see these photos for a handful of reasons. First, because seeing these photos gives us an opportunity to celebrate these important steps in the spiritual development of some of our friends here at North River. There are a number of people who are part of our fellowship who made huge steps for them in terms of following Jesus. And it was exciting to be a part of that. The second reason is that it gives me an opportunity to remind us of the significance that baptism brings to our lives. And the third reason for doing this is that regardless of, of who you are and where you are or whether you were present or just seeing the photos, is that it helps us to set the context for the passage that we are studying this morning because these images of participating in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus are part of the backdrop for what we're going to talk about this morning. Some paragraphs of Paul's letter to the Colossians begin with these reminders. Since you died with Christ, or since you have been raised with Christ. And so he is uh, expecting that we have an understanding that Jesus did something for us in, in dying, and that baptism has all of these images that are built into it. Now, regardless of where and when and how you were baptized as an individual, every person who has placed their trust in Jesus Christ, who has repented of their sins and asked for God's forgiveness, has been made spiritually alive by the inner working of God's Spirit, and you are now living a new life in Christ. 
participation in believer's baptism creates this powerful memory in the life and experience of each person that continues to communicate to us that we are no longer the same old people, that we are under new management. We are living out the new life that God promises to those who follow Jesus. This morning, we're in the eighth part of our summer series that we're calling Getting Clear on Jesus. It's a, a study, passage by passage, of Paul's letter to the Colossian church. And our theme this morning is the power of a new outlook. A new outlook on life can radically change the way that you go about everything that you do, and that is part of what Paul is driving at here in this passage. So here's the big idea that I want to give you right up front. People who are living the new life in Christ continually and increasingly practice transforming habits that reflect Jesus. If you are alive in Christ, it is axiomatic that sooner or later some of these transforming habits begin to exhibit themselves in your life. And this becomes normative for a growing Christian. Let me give you the backdrop for this. The first thought is that new life people see ourselves through three life-changing declarations. I started with verse 12 for a couple of reasons, but it says, therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved. Some of you may remember a few months ago, we taught from this passage in a different series, and I just zeroed in on that one verse for an entire message. And there are three of these declarations that God pronounces over every believer that become transformative for us. The first is that you are chosen. Now, I know this is a review for some of you, but it's so important that we have to review this because there are many, many people who do not understand who we are as Christ's followers in life, and some of you weren't here when we hit just these first three points a few months ago. So the first of these principles, these declarations, is that you are chosen. This must have sounded like foreign, a foreign concept to these mostly Gentile Christians that Paul was writing to in the city of Colossae in modern-day Turkey. Israel was known as God's chosen people throughout the Old Testament era, and now Paul was using the same term to describe Christ followers in the era that comes after the cross that you and I are still living in. You were not chosen because you were better than somebody else. I was not chosen because I'm better than somebody else. Just as with Israel, God's people today are chosen simply because he loved us. Being chosen by God leads us into a great controversial discussion about the doctrine of election. It's a worthwhile doctrine to, to try to fully understand. There are two primary schools of thought on this. One that holds that God chose a class of people, in other words, everybody who put their faith in Christ. The other holds that even faith is a gift from God, so we were chosen even before having faith by God's sovereign power. Now, we're not going to dive more deeply into this concept today because this isn't our focus for this morning, but it's a rich, rich concept, and I simply want you to know that however you unpack this, you are chosen by God if you are a follower of Christ. Here's the second of these principles. You are holy. People get confused very easily when we mention this word holy. It does not mean that you are perfect. It does not mean that we think that we are better than other people and we walk around with a holier-than-thou attitude. When something is declared to be holy by God, it is set apart for His use. And so when the Bible says that you are holy, this is the context that it is using. On one hand, God sees us as we will one day be. 
Romans 8.29 tells us that God is conforming us to the image of Christ. That's his goal, to make us more like Christ, and he will finish that work. Therefore, one of the goals of transformational teaching is always to take us closer to that goal. But even more to the point, when you experience God's grace, you were set aside for his use. That means that God has a purpose for you. God has a role for you to play in his unfolding work of redemptive grace throughout time. And you were made for a mission. He wants you to fulfill that mission. And and so we make no apologies for showing a video like the one that we just saw that plants this idea in your head that you were made for a mission and that we are not here just to be safe, but God is transforming us so that we will be sent into the world because you are a dangerous person when you understand these three concepts, that you are chosen, that you are holy, set aside by God, made for a mission, and the third is that you are dearly loved. No matter what anyone else thinks of you, you are dearly loved by God. In Jeremiah, we read that God loves us with an everlasting love. In John's gospel, we learn that God so loved the world that he gave his one-of-a-kind son. A few months ago, we explored this verse in a thematic series, and I presented these three declarations as principles of Christ-esteem, which is so much better than any self-help book that you can buy related to self-esteem, because it doesn't matter so much how you think of yourself all on your own, but when we see ourselves through God's eyes, it's even higher than we can possibly imagine. When we choose to see ourselves as Christ sees us, as chosen, holy, and dearly loved, we can start off every day on a firm foundation. And so I gave the challenge back then to people to memorize Colossians 3.12 and for people who struggle with self-image to start off every morning reciting this verse, noting that you are chosen, holy, and dearly loved and that God is the one who says that you are. One friend sent me this particular photo and she, she wrote down those words, and she put it next to her bedstand so that every morning when she gets up, she sees those words, and she reminds herself, this is who I am in Jesus. This washes away all the lies of life that says that, that I am insignificant, that I am worthless, that I'm a failure, all that kind of stuff that the world throws at you. Instead, as a Christ follower, we are invited to start off every day saying, I am chosen by the sovereign king. I am holy by his declaration And I am dearly loved by the Almighty God. And it doesn't matter what anybody else thinks of me because nothing can trump that. Now, we're going to build on this foundation with the rest of this message this morning. We left off there a couple of months ago. Because we are chosen, holy, and dearly loved, let me walk you through some of the ramifications of what Paul tells us here in the rest of these verses. Because we are these things if we are Christ followers, if we are largely a community of Christ followers. Here's the first thing that it tells about us as a church. We can become a more virtuous community. And the image that Paul uses here is, he imagines, okay, if we are holy in God's sight, if if we have these titles that we are chosen, holy, and dearly loved, what do you get to wear? How many of you graduated from school this spring? Anybody, any graduates here? How many of you have ever graduated? I say one, <laughs> one. Okay, do you know, remember what you wear at graduation? What do you wear? A cap, right? A 
special caps. Some people put messages on them. When I went to my daughter's college graduate, there were all kinds of messages on the top that you can only see from way up high. And we wear a gown. And the gown and the cap together signify you have accomplished something. There's a new status now that you have. You're a high school graduate, you're a college graduate, you're a grad school graduate or something else like that, that at least for one day allows you to feel pretty special. Then you got to go get a job. <laughs> it all changes, right? So Paul is imagining something like this. He says, hey, when you're given these grand, these grand titles that you are chosen, holy, and dearly loved, there are garments, if you will, that go along with it. Now, he's not saying that we get a special robe and that we're going to walk around in white robes or something like that here in life. But listen to the language that he uses in the rest of this verse. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Paul is saying there is, there is an appropriate adornment that comes with knowing that we have this exalted position where we are chosen, holy, and dearly loved, and there are things that naturally ought to adorn our lives, almost like you put on clothing on a daily basis that begin to mark us. And he's saying that God is at work doing this, so the more we lean into these things, the more they become a reality. The command that's used, in here, used here uh, that says clothe yourselves is a present imperative. That means it has present tense action with continuing results or continuing expectations. It's as if he's saying clothe yourselves today and continue to do this every day. Someone else has called these the five graces of a Christian. And then Paul lists these five primary virtues, five items of clothing fitting for a new life. Compassion is the first one. It may be better rendered as showing tender mercies. Compassion isn't just having a feeling inside, but it's, it's a feeling that leads to acts of mercy in somebody else's life. Compassion is paired with kindness which is one of the qualities we see in God himself. The New Testament says that God's kindness is designed to lead to repentance. But every once in a while, we ought to have these thoughts of saying, wow, God has given me so many blessings. God is really good. Wow. How do I let my life begin to reflect that? Following compassion and kindness is humility. Now, humility is kind of an interesting concept because it was regarded with contempt by the Greeks, and you may be aware that the New Testament was written in the Greek language, and the Greek culture was uh, one of the dominant cultures of that period of time. So the best example of humility in that time and place in the world actually came from Jesus himself, where Paul writes in Philippians that he humbled himself, and he took on the very nature of a servant, even going so far as to allow himself to be put to death for our sake. Kent Hughes writes about that, and he says, the gospel took this word of contempt and made it one of its chief graces. Isn't that an awesome thought? Humility was a negative concept. It's only seen as a positive concept in our world because Jesus modeled it, and so many people have modeled themselves after Jesus. We look at humility as a good thing today because of Jesus. Humility is then paired with gentleness, this is perhaps the most misunderstood virtue. Gentleness does not mean weakness. Rather, it conjures up the picture of great strength, but under control. 
A person marked by gentleness has surrendered control to the strength of the Lord. And therefore, this person knows that he or she could respond with, with swiftness or with force, but doesn't simply because he or she has surrendered control to the Lord. And that gentleness comes out despite the strength that could crush somebody else. And then the fifth of these virtues is patience. The ability to be long-suffering in the face of an insult or in the face of an injury. Now here's one of the simple realities of these five powerful virtues, these five graces of the Christian. None of them can be mastered in isolation. They are all designed to be worked out and experienced and exhibited in community. Therefore, if we are to put on the clothes of a new Christian, so to speak, that's the language Paul uses here, we need each other because it's in the context of each other that we live out these values and that we are tested in these values and that the character of Christ actually comes to shine through us more and more. We can become a more virtuous community. Here's the second reality. Because we are chosen holy and dearly loved, we can become a more forgiving community. Verse 13 takes us further. Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. Question for you. I want hands on this one. How many of you have ever had a grievance against somebody else? All right. How many of you have ever had a grievance against somebody else in church? Ooh. Truth is, most of us have. Some of you are lying. <laughs> Some of you are in denial. <laughs> the longer we are with each other, that we know each other, we have the capacity for saying a dumb thing, for doing a dumb thing, for ignoring something that should happen, and we hurt each other in that. I think one of the most amazing privileges that I have is being a pastor of one church for almost 30 years. It'll be 30 years. We'll have our anniversary as a church on September 1st. I hope you'll come that day. We're going to try and make that a very special day. But over 30 years, you know my weaknesses. You know my sore spots. You know my failings. You know all the times where I haven't followed through or I've let somebody down. And I know most of yours, too, the longer we know each other. Forgiveness triumphs over that. So we can still be one and we can still say we love each other. We radically forgive each other. A church cannot survive without that kind of radical spirit of forgiveness that comes. Now, where, where does it rise from? Well, the final challenge in that verse is forgive as the Lord forgave you. So the more that we understand how much we are forgiven, we naturally learn to forgive others. And the more that we grow in these graces the more forgiveness rises from our hearts as a natural instinct. There's always room for us to take this to a higher level. To bear with one another implies that there is effort involved, and it's effort to bear with one another rather than instantly fighting back. Rick Warren has a code word for this. He uses the phrase, some of you may remember this, EGR, extra grace required, right? So that means, for some of you, you think to, to hang with Paul for 30 years, there's extra grace required. Of course, I don't think that way about any of you. 
His point is that God uses some people in our lives to expand our capacity for forbearance. The sad truth is sometimes we have a false expectation of church. We expect that everybody in the church has already arrived and they're already exactly like Jesus and so therefore we'll never be let down. And you know what the simple reality is? We're all on a continuum. We're somewhere from the beginning getting closer to the end, but none of us are fully developed yet. We're all in process. That means that you and I should never expect a perfect church. We should always expect a church where people are working things out. We're working out our salvation with fear and trembling, the scriptures say. That's what that means. We're trying to live into it and make what God pronounces over us more and more a daily reality We have to give each other a lot of grace. This is why Paul tells us that one of the marks of a growing, healthy community is that we are a more forgiving community, that we are learning to bear with each other, learning to forgive and let go of our grievances. And then here's a a third mark. He says we can become a more loving community. It rises out of verse 14. And over all these virtues put on love, which holds them all together in perfect unity. Isn't that an an interesting statement? Love holds all these other great virtues together in perfect unity. In other words, love is the glue. Love is the cement that takes us there. John Perkins, in his book, Let Justice Roll Down, recounts a story from his own struggles in the civil rights era. He grew up in Mississippi and became one of the leaders of the black church's response to the the violence that was going on in that period of time. There was one occasion in his life where he was arrested and he was beaten badly by an officer. When he was nearly unconscious from the beating, he had an experience of the love of God that he wrote about. This is what he wrote. The Spirit of God worked on me as I lay in that bed. An image formed in my mind, the image of the cross. Christ on the cross. It blotted out everything else in my mind. This Jesus knew what I had suffered. He understood and he cared because he has experienced it all himself. This Jesus, the one who had brought good news directly from God in heaven, had lived what he preached, yet he was arrested and falsely accused. Like me, he went through an unjust trial. He also faced a lynch mob and got beaten. But even more than that, He was nailed to rough wooden planks and killed. Killed like a common criminal. At the crucial moment, it seemed to Jesus that even God himself had deserted him. The suffering was so great. He cried out in agony. He was dying. But when he looked at that mob who had lynched him, he didn't hate them. He loved them. He forgave them. And he prayed God to forgive them. Father, forgive these people, for they don't know what they are doing. His enemies hated, but Jesus forgave. Perkins goes on to say, I couldn't get away from that. It's a profound, mysterious truth, Jesus' concept of love overpowering hate. I may not see its victory in my lifetime, but I know it's true. I know it's true because it happened to me. On that bed full of bruises and stitches, God made it true in me. He washed my hatred away and replaced it with a love for the white man in rural Mississippi. I felt strong again, stronger than ever. What doesn't destroy me makes me stronger. I know it's true 
because it happened to me. That's the power of what love does. That's the way that love can change a human being's response, can shape the way that we think about other people who, who may have different ideas or who, who even treat us wrongly. Now, Paul ends this passage by telling us that there are two keys to this inner transformation. It comes in that final paragraph that starts with verse 15. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you are called to peace, and be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Here are the two keys. When you're in the thick of it, let the peace of Christ arbitrate or rule in your life. The peace of Christ. In John 14, 27, Jesus says, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. Notice the way he phrases this. Jesus calls this my peace. In other words, there is a kind of peace that you and I can know in this world, and then there is Jesus' peace, this my peace that he's talking about. And Jesus is in the business of giving away this my peace that is his gift to us. It is not the kind of peace that simply results from the absence of conflict. It is a deeply soul-satisfying peace that Jesus gives when you call out to him. Kent Hughes, who was my pastor for a couple of years in college, he tells of an old Salvation Army story from the late 1800s about a strong-willed woman who was nicknamed Warrior Brown. That's an interesting name, isn't it? You didn't trifle with Warrior Brown, who easily became belligerent when she was drunk, and people feared her. And then she went through a radical spiritual conversion to faith in Christ. And her life was changed by the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. A week after this life-changing experience, she told about what Christ had done for her in an open-air meeting. Suddenly, a critic in the crowd who knew her before took a potato and he threw it at her and he nailed her with it and it instantly caused a bruise to rise up. And she didn't respond. The old warrior Brown would have retaliated. But by God's grace, she picked up the potato and she pocketed it without saying a word. Several months later, there was something that they called a harvest festival where the people in this rural community were invited to bring their produce as a first fruits offering to God. And Warrior Brown brought as her offering a little sack of potatoes. When the time came for her to tell her story, she explained that after that first open-air meeting, she took that potato that somebody else threw at her and she cut it up and she planted what she called the insulting potato. And what she was now bringing as her gift to the Lord was the increase. She took it and planted it, and she gave the rest back to God. What had she done? She had allowed the peace of Christ to become the umpire of her life, to rule, to arbitrate in this situation, and he used it for good. The second key is to let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Now, the newer NIV translation uses the word message here, the message of Christ. But the Greek word for this in the original is the word logos. It's, it's, it's the word that we get biology and theology from. It means the great truth about something. It's the same concept that John used to describe Jesus as 
the visible word of God, the word of God in flesh who was with God and who was God, it is possible that the translators changed this so as not to confuse the message of Jesus with Jesus, the living word. But the Bible itself refers to the sacred scriptures as the word of God. And I prefer to use that concept, that the Bible is the word of God. And when we let it dwell in us richly, it has power. The more we read it, the more we think about it, the more we memorize it, the more we meditate on it, the word of God shapes our thoughts. Let the word of God dwell in you richly. When you memorize Colossians 3.12 and you study that or you recite that every morning, what you are doing is living out this particular challenge and you are speaking those words over your own life to say, this is how I will choose to see life, that I am chosen, that I am holy, and I am dearly loved. And there are many other truths of Scripture that we need to recite for ourselves so that become a part of the way that we think and therefore the part of the way that we operate in the world around us. Let the word itself dwell in you, in your mind, in your words, in your conversations. Let the message, meaning the meaning of the word, dwell in you richly as well. Why? People who are living the new life in Christ continually and increasingly practice transforming habits that reflect Jesus. And the more that we lean into the process, the more God continues his work of transformation, of making us more like Jesus. So we have seen each week in this series that Jesus is enough. That is the unofficial uh, slogan, if you will, or, or uh, statement of this series. We sang about this in our, one of our opening songs. Jesus, you're all I need, we, we concluded with. And once again, we are discovering that Jesus is enough. He is our enough when it comes to our need for esteem. He is enough through heart-satisfying peace that he gives. It is his peace that he gives you and me when we need it. And Jesus is enough through his life-transforming word. This week, let it wash over you. Think through before you leave. When will I allow the word of God to flow through me this week? When will I put my nose in the book? When will I carve out a few minutes to meditate on another truth about Jesus or about how he sees us? The more you do that, the more you give the Holy Spirit room to work in your life and to take you a step further on the goal of remaking you after the image of Jesus Christ. Let's pray toward that end. Father God, thank you for the opportunity we have here every Sunday and the freedom that we have in this great land to pray to you, to worship you openly, to come here for coaching from your word and to gain another nugget that takes us forward this week and back out into the challenges of the world around us so that we can offer ourselves to you as people who are sent. Lord, I pray that you will make these words attractive to somebody who hasn't yet entered into a trusting relationship with you, that they will desire the peace that you give, that they will desire that goal of little by little being transformed by the Holy Spirit to be more like Jesus. We pray that you'll give anybody who has been asking those questions the courage right now to say, Lord, 
as best I know how. I want to lean on you. I want to shift my trust from myself to be good enough or holy enough to you who will do this for me. Change my life. Take my sins and wash them away, even like in the images of a baptism. And give me this new life so that I can get started on this same journey. And Lord, for those of us who are longtime veterans, we ask that you will take us deeper and deeper into the newness and the richness of life. Help us not to be Sunday-only Christians, but Christians every day who are experiencing more and more of the peace that Jesus gives and the life-changing graces that he develops in us. We want to be like Jesus, and so we're inviting you to work in our lives right here and throughout the week that we would honor you and that we would fully make the most of the opportunities you've given us. In Jesus' name. Hey, I want to tell you that next Sunday, Pastor Christie is going to take this uh, to the next level here, to the part nine of this series. So if you're tempted to skip on a day when you can be here and you're not vacationing, I want you to ask, ask you to save that date for a day when I'll be preaching. Come here to back up Christie and give her all the support you got, all right? We've got one final song, and our ushers are going to come and we'll receive this morning's offering. Thanks for being here. Thanks for making this a great summer together, too.